Hello, Gachi Bonas. I am so excited to be bringing you this episode, the second episode of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that's audio archiving the state repression and fierce migrant resistance against that oppression in the southern Arizona borderlands. And on this episode, I was very excited to interview Roxy Valenzuela, who is a community organizer and affordable housing advocate with the Casa Maria Catholic Worker Community. We discussed the mental health toll that the eviction threats take on tenants, the bureaucratic red tape that is causing backlogs for people seeking eviction relief from government agencies, and why community land trusts can be beneficial as a tool against gentrification and displacement. In the show notes, there is also a list of resources for those who are fighting eviction in Pima County. Thank you to Roxy for sharing that with listeners. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a patron. You'll get first access to episodes like these. I released this episode earlier in the year and exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are literature reviews that I do with fierce women of color over timely texts. And it's really an expansion of the conversations that I'm having on the podcast, but through the focus of books. Another amazing way that you can support the podcast is by leaving an Apple podcast rating and review. I wanted to shout out the last individual who left me a rating whose username was Lazy Waffles, <laughs> I believe. They wrote, Yvette's conversations are thorough to the point and always thought-provoking. I'm grateful this podcast exists. If you're interested in Arizona issues, namely the border, that affect the whole country, this podcast will give you a lot of valuable context and information. Thank you so much. Again, it really helps with visibility and rankings if you all leave consistent ratings and reviews. So please share why you continue listening to the podcast, why you're listening right now. And finally, another way to support is to follow at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope you all enjoy this interview. I am very excited today to have Roxana Valenzuela, who is an affordable housing advocate, a community organizer with Casa Maria Catholic Charities, and is here to talk about the eviction crisis in Arizona. But before we get more into it, I just wanted to thank you for being on the podcast and ask how you're doing. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I mean, um, all in all, I'm doing great. Um, my health is good, so I'm, I'm lucky for that. But it's just been very tough these last couple of weeks. You know, my heart breaks every time that I talk to families and individuals who are struggling to stay in their homes 
who are in desperate need of help. But yeah, no, I'm I'm good. I'm blessed. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm good. I'm so grateful that you were so responsive about this interview because that can be one of the most difficult things about podcasting is the scheduling. <laughs> and I'm yeah. a I'm a one woman operation over here, so I just really appreciate you making time, especially because this is a very timely conversation considering that the news just broke that Biden has decided to extend the eviction moratorium. Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to hear that. I'm just I'm saddened that they didn't treat this with such urgency before, you know, it expired. I've had conversations mm-hmm. with people just who have are completely devastated, stressed. I've heard conversations of people talking about them taking their lives because they have no idea what they're going to do next wow. and how they're going to provide with their uh, for their families. So, I mean, just right. living with that stress alone can harm somebody's health and 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 the public health, you know, in so many ways. So, um, well, that's good good to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking about housing through a public health lens, because I think that that is an often under discussed issue with housing is how closely it is related ultimately to mental and emotional stability. And so I just really appreciate you bringing in that health aspect, because I think that's really critical. Almost definitely. I mean, I grew up in a Habitat for Humanity home and it was very humble. We didn't have much, but I know what having a stable house and the opportunities that it provides to a person. And so, no, it's, it, this is super important and it's a, it's a human right and it's, right. A, and it's essential for, like you just said, for health. Could we back up a bit and then could you share what is the work that you do with Casa Maria and what Casa Maria is dedicated to? Sure. Well, I'm a community organizer. Um, I came on board with Casa Maria just when the pandemic hit. I left my job at a huge corporation, Phoenix, and I came back to serve my community. I was having conversations with my family members, with friends who were very scared, who lost their jobs, who were struggling to make ends meet. So I, yeah, I I left my job over there and I started working full time here at Casa Maria. And I'm also starting up and are managing a community land trust to bring in affordable housing to this community and help the heritage families stay here and not get displaced because not just the gentrification, but also the the inability to afford a house right now or their rent is just, the market is, is, is so out of control and we're, we're right. facing with the housing crisis. So we're just trying to do what we can to preserve the existing residents who are very vulnerable in, in this community. So you mentioned that you quit your job amidst the pandemic. What and you left a corporate job at that. What made you want to make that switch? I just, I couldn't find any meaning in what I was doing anymore. Wow. I mean, the money was great. Don't get me wrong. There was a, an, a ladder mm-hmm. that I was climbing and there was so much room for growth, but just, it was unfulfilling for me anymore. I just couldn't go on in, in uh, my regular day-to-day duties, knowing that mm-hmm. people didn't have food to eat and and didn't have a job and knowing that children were suffering, their mental health was in such huge distress. 
So I just, that's kind of one of the reasons I, I, I had to leave and, and work here and serve. That's great. Could you explain what a community land trust is and why you see it as a good avenue for increasing affordable housing? Yeah, a community land trust in concept is an organization that is going to buy as much property land as possible to take it off the speculative market and give it back to the community, be able to Mm. create some type of generational wealth between these residents. So they have the opportunity to purchase a property and be homeowners and then maybe pass it on to other generations, to their family members. And it just helps because it, it preserves the community, the culture, the people that are already here. It, it stops the displacement or at least slows it down. But I'm going to be completely honest with you. It's It's been very hard because we cannot get any houses, any properties, even land. There's just so many investors coming in. Some are local, but for the most part, mm. what I've encountered is a lot of uh, out of state or even out of, uh, out of the country investors that are just buying mm-hmm. properties without even looking at them. Uh, offering, yeah, you know, over asking price. So like we we can't even compete with them. So it's it's been very hard for us to even get our hands on any properties right now. But we're not, you know, we're not going to give up. We're trying to get creative, find new, innovative ways to to get a hold of this land. Trying to work with Pima County, other big institutions, so we can collaborate and 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 try to come together to help this this community. So what is the difference between a community land trust versus like somebody having the deed to a house that they then can pass on to their children? So as Casa Maria, we would own the land. So there's different formulas for for different owners or tenants, but basically the land is owned by the organization forever, but they own the asset. So they will own the building. Therefore mm-hmm. they can, they, they're building equity, but by us owning the land, that means that we can preserve it longer. You know, they can't just go off and say one day, Hey, you know what? I, I'm moving. I want to sell this property. And then they could sell it to the highest bidder the land stays within us. So we create formulas where they can still make some type of equity and, and, and wealth through it. But the idea is for them to stay here or to pass it on to their family members. I've heard what you mentioned about how it really is a buyer's market right now in real estate. And there's a, a small town very close to the Mexico border, Aravaca, and a friend lives there and told me that almost every property for sale, I think virtually everyone has been bought up by outside investors and it's unclear what's going to happen. You know, is this the Airbnbification of the Southwest? And so, yeah, so I just, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think that that's a pressing issue and wanted to ask how you're trying to get around that now. I mean, I'm seeing so many different things. I see investors buying houses, flipping them and renting them at very unreasonable prices with the way, you know, the economy is right now and what the residents in our um and our barrios can actually afford. But I'm also seeing a lot of investors just parking their money, buying houses and just sitting on them. 
and um right right very wasteful yes and with, there's such a huge need for of people to be happy right. right now it's just like it's very very devastating to see that because we need we need to house people we can't have them on the streets and i i understand that one solution is to build more houses but i i think there has to be also mm-hmm. in addition to that there has to be more laws that prevent people from doing that just buying whole neighborhoods right, right? and then just sitting on them or renting them um yeah at unreasonable rates yeah i think as the wealth inequality grows more and more then it's this issue is going to just become even more salient because it like you said it building housing is just only one part of the needed solution and the the other part is regulating the people who have the capital to buy up whole regional mm-hmm. markets yeah Yeah, to go back to the community land trust legal idea, what is the difference between that and like a homeowners association where the critique is that the people who own the land are very controlling and can control like how your landscape looks and what color your house is and think, you know, things that you might want to be able to control as a homeowner? I mean, we're we're not about that you know we we want people to have the freedom to live comfortably but definitely live in a safe environment so we will provide that sort of support you know like let's say they have some foundational issues you know or they need help with cooling or heating you know we want to be able to provide that for them and make sure that they're growing in a in a safe environment as well but no, we, we don't want to control. Like part of our, our barrio is, is, is to be unique, you know, and we want that. We want them to go ahead and express that. And, you know, we don't want to build communities of cookie cutter houses or we don't want to control their, their every <laughs> um, intention of, of living comfortably, and whatever that means. We just want them to have a shelter for it to be safe and comfortable. That's really great. And when you say barrio, who are you referring to? So... We are in the city of South Tucson, and so Barrio Libre is the closest barrio to us, um, but we're also part of Santa Rita Barrio, and so there's it's a cluster of barrios here, but mostly we focus on the city of South Tucson. Uh, that is where the greater need is, and that's where most of the residents that we serve are from. That's really great. How has COVID impacted homelessness in the Tucson area? Wow. Well, that's that's really hard because it kind of goes in waves. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, many people that we were serving were placed in temporary housing by the Pima County. So they were put in hotels, but slowly they just started letting mm-hmm. them out, back onto the streets. I will tell you that some families did get uh, permanent housing though, but that was like rarely the case. We didn't see much of that. So that was at the beginning of the pandemic. I think uh, last October, Mm. that's when they stopped the program. And we started seeing a lot of migration from homeless individuals coming Mm. uh, from different states like Washington and California. So we did start seeing a wave of of, of migrants uh, from other places. 
right now, I'm seeing a lot more families, a lot more people that have probably used up all of their cards. You know, they've stayed with family members, they've borrowed all the money they could and, and right now have nowhere else to go. So I, I am seeing a lot more families on the street. Now I also see them being swept away from different areas. So sometimes mm. they go to the east side and then they're being swept to the north side and then back over here. I think they see mm. like a safe haven here. In South Tucson. In South Tucson, yes. But I don't know. It, it kind of, it's just, it varies. And I know that COVID-19 doesn't really discriminate, but it has definitely hit the most vulnerable of our residents the hardest. They just, they're, they don't have resources or they're very limited to resources. And the government has a lot of money. They've received, or at least local government has had, I think over a hundred million dollars provide some financial help for those who are struggling, but the money is just coming down so slowly and there's so much mm. bureaucracy involved and, and, but the suffering doesn't stop, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and so they're not getting help fast enough. And that that's creating a huge mental health crisis over here. So yeah, that that's kind of what I'm seeing from, from this side of town. Yeah, I was going to ask about what the program was that allowed that small number of families that you said to secure housing amidst the COVID pandemic, and also ask if the funding was inclusive of people who are undocumented. You know, I, I wish I had the answer. I know it was through Pima County, but I, I'm not sure of all of the requirements. I know there was there were several families that I know that were housed at the hotels, and then they they went through whatever process they told them to do and, and and they were able to get secure that that permanent housing i i really don't have the answer mm -hmm. to the undocumented families i just that that's all i know but i could find out for you <laughs> okay great yeah i was gonna say i can also research and uh -huh. um, post this up later when we find out the answer because i just bring that up because i know that that was an issue with covid funding in other places where you know there there were these good relief programs locally but they excluded undocumented people and it's very problematic because as we've been talking about the virus doesn't discriminate mm -hmm. and none of us are safe until all of us are safe right really really quite literally with this virus and so i think it you know it's just ever relevant to to talk about that yeah i mean i know there was just many programs but i know that like pima county yeah. through that housing that temporary housing were the ones that were able to connect them or, you know, or, or provide those additional resources. But I, I can find out for sure. Yeah. You mentioned people coming from other states. Why do you think that is? I mean, I don't, have you seen what it's like in California? Oh, I'm from the Bay I mean, I, I, <laughs> expensive housing is why I moved here, but it's just so hot here. I don't know. Like this, this is, wouldn't you say this is one of the harder places to be unhoused, especially right now with the heat? Yeah, I think weather-wise, yes, I, I agree. But I also feel that there's not, I don't know, I think Tucson's kind of like a hidden gem and it's not overpopulated. Oh, so true. So true. So I believe that it's also a safety, a physical and, and, and mental safety uh, net for them. Um the violence is not terrible over here. The crime is not as high, I think, as, as those other places. So, I mean, that's that's what I've heard. 
I've heard it's just like people leave you alone you know they they sleep at the park and and a lot of people just they know to not start any problems and um, so I think that's one thing that is attractive to those individuals or maybe just because it's a little bit more affordable to live here so they have hopes that they can find housing here and Mm -hmm. as opposed to those other areas right and then they come here and the economy is still in a bad condition and it's yeah. still difficult to find work mm-hmm. that has a living wage and people end up unhoused. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there's people who are being swept up from the east side to the south side. By that you mean police arresting people, right? I don't think they arrest them, or at least that's not what I've heard. What I've heard is just they're they're being forcibly removed, removed, or they're asking them to go to shelters, or they even are providing them with with rides to shelters. But a lot of these individuals, they believe it or not, they they care, you know, and they take precaution. The police officers? No, no, the the home oh. individuals. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, so the homeless individuals, they take precaution because of COVID. You know, they mask up. Mm-hmm. They try People to do the best that they can. Yeah, and shelters, besides the limited space, sometimes it won't take pets or sometimes it just, it's a, a safety hazard mm-hmm. and, and they rather go somewhere else. So they're being, they're being pushed out of different parks, different camps. And so they just go to other areas and they're just moving around like that, but. Arrested? No, I haven't heard. I haven't heard that people are getting arrested for being homeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I bring that up because that was definitely a policing strategy in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, like there was so the mission, the historically Latinx neighborhood of San Francisco got gentrified very fast because mm-hmm. of tech. And our outside of one of the BART stations in particular in the mission, there was a pretty large encampment of people who are unhoused and it was like the occupied the whole plaza. And periodically, you you know, if you were a commuter, you would see that every three weeks or something, all of a sudden, nobody was camped out there. And then of course time would pass and people would come back. And and so it was just kind of this like cyclical policing that was actually just harassing people who are unhoused and so I just wanted to point out that even if it's like you're not arrested as in you're not booked and placed in jail like this is harassment on the part of police because it's not like people are staying in the park because they want to be a visible public nuisance people are staying in the park because of the issues that you just brought up with the shelters there's limited capacity or they don't allow pets and I think anybody with a pet can understand that, <laughs> that decision yeah. and, or X, Y, and Z it's, or it's, it's a safety hazard for X, Y, and Z reason. And I, yeah, I wanted to point out that it's like uh, the cops are forcibly removing people from these parks and kind of in a, in a very band-aid way, if we can even call it that, because it's really, it's really like, it's really like an aesthetic thing. Right. And it was, it was so, it was so it was so obvious in, in in the mission where the neighborhood got gentrified so so fast and it was just really clear that like these techies didn't want to see unhoused people and you because that that like connoted something to them 
And it really is the same motivation here because like I said, you know, it's like a nice anecdote that a police officer gave somebody a ride to a shelter, but that is not addressing the root cause of the problem. And, and also actually like the actual relationship between police and people who are unhoused is a really antagonistic one. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, I'll I'll tell you that our neighborhoods are being gentrified at a much higher rate than I've ever seen. And I grew up here. So I understand that some neighbors are are complaining because, Mm. you know, yeah, like you said, the aesthetic of it or because they they might feel uncomfortable. I'm not seeing huge like crime waves or cops, you know, just arresting a lot of people. For the most part, they keep to themselves. But I have heard from other homeless individuals from like the east side or north side who have been homeless for years over there just coming here because they're feeling they're feeling a certain type of way. And I wouldn't, they didn't put it as harassment. Are you saying they feel more policed? Yeah, I wouldn't say harassed, but they are feeling very uncomfortable, but not just by the police, but by neighbors. And you're right. It's, we have mm. to get to the systemic change, right? It's like, let's house them. That's the solution. Let's find housing. We have all of these right. vacant hotels. We have vacant right. Um, right. Airbnbs. Airbnbs. Like, let's house them. That's gonna, if that that's gonna make you feel more comfortable, you know. So that's definitely something right. we need to focus on instead of just like keep moving them around from one side of town to the other or or provide them the rights to shelter like that's not the solution yeah that's kind of what what we're seeing it um it just like it comes in waves sometimes they're able to find some good samaritan that will provide them with housing or temporary stay or or a good shelter but for the most part it's the same people just getting the runaround yeah i appreciate you bringing up that some instances it's people actually just feeling pushed out by neighbors because I think there's the police as an institution and then there's the ways that we normalize policing and internalize policing and police others. And as you say, it's really critical to be paying attention to the actual effects Mm -hmm. of these actions because it's not getting to the root problem of people need housing. And it's just, you know, you mentioned earlier, housing is a human right. And so we need to just deeply interrogate what that means for us in a society that has these spouse capitalist values, because we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with people who are unable mm-hmm. to be in the legit paid labor market and make the amount necessary to pay the market level rent because there will always be a group of people who are unable to do that largely because of disability and we need to ask ourselves as a society like what are we going to do about that are we okay with that being the case and then people being shit out of luck and just needing to survive outside yeah, I mean, I think we need to look at what or reevaluate what, what we value, right? And we we definitely value property above people, mm-hmm. and we're not looking out for for the common good. And 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 like every every civilization has, you know, different different individuals, and there's some that need more help than others. And I think we're we're not focusing on what they really need. Like you said, there's so many people that suffer from disability, mental health, they need those resources. 
they need that help, but they're just ignored mm-hmm. by society, by those in power, you know, those most people that who we're giving the power to who we've elected to take office and they're just being ignored and prioritizing other other stuff so no i i completely agree um we need to we need to come together and we need to be more more conscious of 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 what we value yeah and again i will bring up the kind of the visual aspect of this because i think that that is also why police do serve that function of you know forcibly removing people or clearing areas that are being gentrified that are being made to be appealing to a certain class of people because i think also part of that is not wanting to think about the fact that there are some people in your community who are unhoused right it's like especially because of what capitalism is sold to us as is right it's like prosperity and abundance for everybody and it's I think for many privileged wealthy individuals they do not like to think about the fact that there are people who have so little that they do not have a physical home one one place to call home and it's really important to not ignore that as you say and to to actually look at the problem head on resources are available to a renter who's facing eviction. Thank God. Okay, so in the last two weeks, I have, on average, I probably talked to five to six individuals in the morning just coming to us like, hey, I have this bill and I haven't had help and my landlord is is pressuring me and the eviction moratoriums are being lifted. I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know where to go. I've so I created a list of organizations that that have received some of this COVID relief um, funds. And I have 15 organizations. Some are faith-based, some are government agencies, uh, some are just nonprofit. And every single one of these have come back to me saying we're out of funds or we have this huge wait list. So it's going to be 30 to 45 days for us to even get you like a case manager. So it's, we're still going through, through the process. I've created a lot of cases for many individuals for through like Pima County eviction prevention websites. And, you know, we've, we've put them on on waiting lists um, with different organizations, with churches, but it's, it's that wait time that really stresses people out and the landlords as well. You know, they also have um, bills to pay, you know, and, 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 and some are better than others, especially, you know, um, like small landlords, small local family owned um, properties. So it's the resources are out there. It's just impossible to get the funds but i don't know there there's just a huge list of organizations out there that claim to be able to help but once you get to them it's it's very difficult to go through that very that tedious process and very slow process so it's it's very it's very hard um, for these families to endure this this type of stress it's really messing with mental health like like i said you know just today this this gentleman's like 
I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. I don't know if to jump off of a bridge. I don't know like what to do because my, my wife is sick. She has heart. She has a heart condition. I I'm like, I have a, uh, myself, a thyroid and, and other diseases. And he's like, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not okay. And nobody really answers. And he, he's an older gentleman who doesn't understand technology mm-hmm. as, as well as, you know, as the younger generations. And, and it's very frustrating that nobody takes the time to help him or give him a, a straight answer. And so those, that's, those are the type of individuals that we're, we're dealing with. And, and so the resources are impossible to get to right now. Yeah, I mean, 15 different organizations is good on the one hand to have that many organizations that are allegedly available to help with housing, but then at the same time, that really does sound like a bureaucratic mess because every one of those has their own particular set of requirements and criteria and eligibility and, and you know, response time and all that. And, but I, I'm curious because you mentioned earlier that on the one hand, local entities have gotten millions of dollars for COVID relief. And then at the same time, it seems all these organizations that you know about and that you've listed and that you recommend to people are tapped out. So is it an issue of needing more resources or is it an issue of resources being allocated inefficiently? Well, I wish I had the answer to that. I, I know there's something definitely going on and they're not they're not treating this with urgency. The answer I get a lot from these organizations is we're understaffed. You know, we don't have enough caseworkers. We don't have enough time to train people to go through the same, through the, the proper process of interviewing, you know, these applicants. But at the same time, like they should make it really easy and get this money out there as soon as possible. You know, like it's, they're just, they're treating it just like with such little importance, I feel. And, um, and they can get the workers. There's people there that, that need work and, and they can definitely train a, a good team of them. But yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm getting is we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough trained case workers. And so they just have to wait. I mean, it's so strange for an employer to be saying that when there's, and the economy is as bad as it is, and many people are suffering unemployment or experiencing unemployment right now. And so that makes me wonder about the job conditions for those entities. And then also just, it sound, does sound like an execution problem. Like these funds are sitting there, but there aren't enough people to actually physically write the checks or like handle the cases, you know, award the money. Yeah. That's super frustrating. It is. And, and, and is so that's something that you feel across the board or something that you've just seen with a few of the nonprofits, but could be other issues as well? No, mostly the government organizations, nonprofits. I work at a nonprofit and I know, you know, we're, we are, we do take on so much and we are like volunteer based. So, you know, we don't have the resources to, to hire and people that are capable, you know, of doing this type of like, I don't know, for lack of better words, social work. But but I know that government entities do, you know, they they do have the cap the capacity to hire and train and pull people from other departments to help, you know, but but they're not. Most faith-based and uh, nonprofits, I mean, they are tapped out like with, with funds because I think people go to them first because it's just easier, you know, to go through their systems and through 
through government agencies. Why is that in Arizona? Why is that in Arizona? Yeah, that, uh, or do you think that's particularly true for Arizona or, and you, you know, is this something that you think is a larger issue of government agencies being particularly difficult to navigate? And if a nonprofit is offering benefits, then people seek them out first. Yeah, I don't know. I think they just have all of these restrictions and policies in place and maybe that just make it very difficult for for a regular person to access these type of resources. But yeah, I, mm -hmm. I really, I don't know. I, I have nothing else to compare it with like other states. I, I just know that has been my experience uh, throughout this time. They just operate slow and they're not, they don't put themselves in, in other people's mm -hmm. shoes, you know, and, 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 and think about if, if it was them, they're not, they're not being empathetic. And I do know some people that work for some government agencies that I feel like their hands are tied and, and they are putting in extra hours, but they're not really, it just comes from their leadership. You know, if the, if the leadership is not doing more to put uh, more, making this more of a pressing issue, then, then they can only do so much. Right. So now that the moratorium has been extended, what is avenues for relief are available for people who are facing eviction? And then also, isn't it true that the process of eviction can be very fast in Arizona? And that that is another reason why this is such a pressing issue because, and you know, why it's like very serious that there's a backlog of cases in government agencies because the there's increased need and and the need happens very quickly Eva, like for this last year we've been trying to fight to get people who are facing eviction uh, legal representation and you know we we were successful to an extent with pima county mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. you know we fought for this initiative to to get tenants uh, legal representation uh, but the program has just been lagging and the people that have that are in charge of executing this program have just been dragging their feet and you know i think the only thing that's out there right now from my understanding is like there's some phone numbers you can call and then you can get a navigator and they'll refer you to some attorney, but it's not, it's, they're not treating it as they should be. This program should have been initiated a long time ago. It passed on March 16th and there's, they're barely uh, putting it together. That is just so, it's so depressing, honestly, that it would take from March to July to execute such a critical program. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And, and, and you know, we've, we've talked to these individuals and, and try to share with them, you know, our concerns. We've even threatened to sue them because we know that once that, you know, if, if we don't get legal representation and all of these people are being evicted, they're going to be knocking on our door. And, and honestly, we, we, we do have, we do operate off of donations from very generous uh, donors, but no money is going to be enough to to assist all of these, these individuals. Right. And I think representation is particularly important in these situations where there is a power dynamic at play. There is a landlord, the property owner. And in many, many times, landlords do try and intimidate tenants out of their rights. And I think that is why it's all the more critical to have representation that lets you know your rights and also can defend you against whatever the landlord is planning. 
Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're continuing to advocate for basic rights of, of, of any human and um, especially housing right now. We know how important it is for everybody's health. Like I said, not just physical, um, mental, but also like just housing creates so much stability and opportunity. Mm-hmm. So we, we need mm-hmm. to continue advocating for these and, and unite um, as a community and be vocal about it. So we can continue putting pressure on these elected officials or who, those who have power to to bring bring some change and 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 treat it as if it was their own family facing um, these evictions or under these circumstances. Right. Yeah. I was very heartened to see Gabriela Casares Kelly, the Pima County reporter, and Andres Cano, who's a Arizona State legislative rep, who went to D.C. to support Cori Bush and her protest regarding the eviction moratorium, because we do need more politicians who are willing to put themselves on the line for these issues because as you said, housing is a human right. Yeah, absolutely. And we all need to get involved politically, you know, like that's something I had never done in the past, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's very important. They, they define who gets what, and, and we definitely need to put in power those that, that really care about bringing good change to, to the, to people that have been like just historically marginalized and, and, and oppressed. And so we, we all need to be a little bit more, more involved and, and, and care a little bit more, not just about ourselves, but of others. Yeah. And that's why I just admire Cori Bush so much because she is somebody who experienced homelessness and is now in the U.S. Congress. And that is exactly the kind of people that I want representing me and others is people who just real people who have had real problems and who are sympathetic because they know how nasty an eviction can be and destabilizing and all that. Yeah, I wanted to go over there. I was about to book a flight to Washington to support her as well. (laughs) Yeah, right? I know, right? It's like the issue. Yeah, it's very admirable. And we've been fighting for this for so long that we need people at that level advocating, you know? So yeah, I agree with you 100%. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I was going to say, Roxy, those were all the questions that I wanted to ask of you and we've been talking for just under an hour and I don't want to keep you for too long. So I just wanted to ask if there's anything that about housing rights or the eviction crisis in Arizona that we didn't get to touch on today. The only thing I have to say is that we need to start changing our approach. We continue incentivizing developers. We continue inviting people from out of town to come live here and experience our right. our our great city. But we're completely ignoring those who have been here for generations, who want to stay here, who who are are begging for opportunity and so we just need to invest in 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 the community because they are you know they are the future and and they want help they need help so we need to just redirect those that help to them and 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 they will thrive you know we will thrive but we just we just need to focus on like have more of a bottom top approach instead of what we've been continuously doing just focusing on 
focusing on the on the wealthy people. So yeah, that that's all I have to say. Yeah, no, and that's why I really appreciate your work organizing the barrios of South Tucson because those are the folks who are experiencing the brunt of Tucson's gentrification and are the most marginalized, as you're saying. And so I just really appreciate your work and thank you for coming onto the podcast. I hope to have you back on again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Happy Friday. Oh, no. Happy Tuesday. Sorry. Oh, my God. In my, in my mind, I was like, happy Friday. <laughs> it feels like Friday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have a good Bye. Time. Bye. Bye.